and do that. You're nicely done. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, again, this word stands before us and we're amazed. Help us never uh, just to sort of ho-hum it, to think, well, here we go again. But rather, God, to realize that you, uh, however mysterious this is to us, amazing this is to us, remarkable this is to us, that you, the God of all that is, communicated to us in this through this book. And so we pray that we would honor it as such as your very word, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please. To Isaiah in chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I once again want to read this passage, verse 1 through verse 7, please. Isaiah in chapter 9. For me, at least, it's always great to linger in passages. Uh, if uh, you ask me to make a list of key passages in the Bible, however reticent I may be to do that, because I'd rather you read the whole thing, this certainly would be one of them. This would be a place to linger in this uh, prophetic word of Isaiah. And so here we go again. And we come now to this word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now I want, God will help me, to take up this description of the Messiah, the Christ of Jesus, everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Now, these names, and we've been going over them as you have noticed in the last few weeks, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, next Sunday, Prince of Peace, These four names are what's known as throne names or names given to the king. Throne names. That is, kings were to be wise. Kings were to be mighty. Kings were to rule graciously, compassionately as a father. Uh, 
They were to bring peace to the land. I mean, those kinds of things were to be said about kings. So when a king was installed, whoever that might be, uh, they, would, they would sort of gather around the throne, if you will, with these, with these names of a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, those kinds of things. Now, these now are applied, ironically, to this child who's to be born. I say ironically because there was a king about whom such things should have been able to be said. Well, maybe not in the, the grandiose and great manner of wonderful counselor that is this, whose counsel is, is, is unfathomable to us. Or, or mighty God, yes, he was to be a great warrior, but, but God with that. Or, or, or everlasting father, would his reign go on forever? No, but he was to be compassionate as a father would be compassionate, have compassion upon his children. He was, he was to bring, the, 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 bring peace to the land. It should, these words should have been able to be said in some measure of the king who was on the throne in Judah, whose name was Ahaz. Uh, These things could not have been said of him. He wasn't wise. He wasn't mighty. He didn't have compassion upon the people as a father has compassion upon his children. He didn't bring peace. He wasn't wise. He was foolish. Rather than trusting God, he he sided. He aligned himself and aligned the nation with his mighty nation, Assyria. Uh, That was the best he could figure, but he should have trusted God. If he had trusted God, if if that wisdom had been his, then, then he would have had the very might of God behind him. God would have fought for him. And he would be one who is compassionate towards his people, thinking best of them. As it was because he sided with this nation, Assyria, he sold the soul of his people really to this pagan nation. And he did not bring peace. There wasn't peace ultimately in the land. But these words were spoken of this child who was to be born. This son who was to be given. And he would be a king. He would be this very king that that would embody all of these titles all of these titles, really, we can see that there would be government upon his shoulders. And, and, and this would be his name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government peace, there would be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You see, that, that, that would be it. And again, as, as, as Isaiah would be even saying, this bells and whistles should have been going off in people's heads. The throne of David, of course, that was the great promise. You might remember early in Israel's history, they were governed by judges. These judges would be there and they were to be holy and they were to be righteous and they were to judge the people. Now that may have a bad connotation, but in that sense, judge to rule the people really under God. Now, after this period of judges, things didn't go well, but it wasn't always the fault of the judges. In fact, rarely it was really the fault of the people. You remember this little, this little saying that goes through the book of Judges that every person did what was right in his own eyes. That was the problem. They were rebellious people, not submitting to any rule of God or anyone else. And so the people then clamored for a king because they saw how difficult their life was. And they said, we want a king like the other nations because we want a king who will come and protect us and bring peace. You might remember the judge of the time, Samuel. He, he, he was upset about that. And God said, oh, they're not, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me. It's that bad. So God says, give them a king. We remember the first king wasn't the best king at all, King Saul. But there was a king that came next whose 
name was David. And this was a king who wasn't perfect, obviously, in his own life. We know the foibles and flaws and sins of David. But, but, but this was the king that God would say, he's a man after my own heart. He's like me. And so here he's going to be a type. He's going to be one who, who is going to, who's going to be kind of an illustration of what I'm going to bring to you. And so he, he makes this promise to David, you might remember, in, in 2 Samuel in chapter 7. Uh, this particular passage, there's a, a bit going on between David and God about who's going to build this temple and all of that. And, and God tells David, it's not going to be you, it's going to be your son. But, but here's the promise he makes. Concerning David's son Solomon, he says this, He shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish my throne, the throne of my kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forevermore. And that promise then, so the expectation, always one to sit on the throne of David. Well, now this son, this child is to be born. This son is to be giving, given. And he's going to sit on this throne, you see. And he's going to rule forever. The, 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 his, um, his, his, his kingdom will go on, it says. Uh, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteous, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This particular, this particular king. You see, it was the kings of ancient Israel and Judah that really were their undoing, the very undoing of the nation. See, the kings were to be the representative of God's righteous rule on the earth. These kings were to be representatives of the righteous rule of God. And they simply, for the most part, weren't. And so the people were led into all kinds of sin. And, and eventually then, as you might remember, the people were scattered everywhere. And the promise of God was this. Since those kings, as he refers to them often, those shepherds were unfaithful, he would come and be their king. In Ezekiel in chapter 34, he says this, verse 11. He says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Through this passage, God says, I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will feed them. I myself will be the shepherd of my people. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I'll seek the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I'll bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And all of that. He says, this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to come. And so again, when this announcement of this child to come is made, it's made understanding even that. And then when this child does come, see, yes, he is in fact here. Of course, you remember the great sign that, that uh, uh, Ahaz rejected and the great sign that God would give that he would be born miraculously, actually conceived miraculously. This birth would come from a woman who had never known a man. He says, oh, that's the sign of my coming. When that one comes, he'll be Emmanuel, he'll be God. He'll be God with us. So the question then for us, what do these titles mean? Well, we said wonderful counselor. He would be the the one who has the very wisdom of God, the mighty God. He would be our warrior to fight our battles, the very power of God. 
And now this expression, everlasting father. What does it mean? What does it mean when applied to this Messiah? What do we know about him? Because he's this one who is everlasting father. Everlasting, we go, all right, we get it. His rule will have no end. It will go on forever. It won't change. And even of Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us he's the same today, yesterday, uh, yesterday, today, and forever. So, so we said, yes, he doesn't change. We get that. His rule will go on forever. No change in it. It's predictable. It's understandable. It's secure. There it is. But what about this expression, father? That's a bit confusing, isn't it? We were talking about the son. And when we think about God in this sense of the holy trinity, we understand to be God, one God, three persons, father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So aren't we talking about the one who is the Son, this child to be born, this Jesus who comes, this Emmanuel, God with us. Why aren't we talking about the Son? So if we're talking about the Son, how can his name be Everlasting Father? Shouldn't it be Everlasting Son? So what really is, is, is the point here? We know that in the context of God, as we read through the Scripture to understand, as he's revealed to us, It isn't just he's one God who shows up in three different forms or various forms from time to time. Sometimes he's Father, sometimes he's Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. But we get this sense of three persons. When the Father speaks of himself, he refers to I. When he speaks to Jesus, he speaks to you. When Jesus speaks to the Father, he speaks to you. When he speaks of himself, he speaks of I or me. So persons. Now we understand as we read through, that they're all same substance, God, if you will, all deserving of worship, all eternal, all of that. But yet three persons, one God. So now what do we do when the Son is called the everlasting Father? Well, that's a good question. Here's a good answer. Um, The answer is this, essentially, that it isn't the prophets or gods at this point notion to be speaking to us about the Son's relationship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's talking about what it means for him to rule, the very character of his rule. It was not uncommon at all for the king to be referred to, to be known as Father. So he says, this is the kind of rule that this king would have. He would be a wise rule, wonderful counselor. He'd be a, a great and mighty and protecting and rule where this, this king would fight for us, mighty God. And this too, he's going to rule as one who is father. That's what will characterize him. We could use a lot of different words to characterize um, kings, despots, benevolence. This one would be known as father. That would that would characterize his rule he's going to rule over his people as a father rules over his children that's the real sense of it you see that's the sense of it that's what he's going to be really like now i know that when i speak of fathers that does not always summon the kind of thoughts that God wants us to be thinking when we think of Father. This is true. Because of our natural fathers, our biological fathers, our fathers that we've had in the course of our lives, um, some of us recoil when we hear that word. It could be that a father has been 
But when you think of father, you think of one who is absent. And when I say absent, I don't simply mean one who isn't physically present because there's a way for a father to be physically present and absent. And there's a way for a father to be absent physically and present. There's some fathers who have to be away physically, but still very engaged in their families. There are other fathers who are present and not engaged at all. So it may, for whatever reason, but, but you're thinking absent. Just simply not a part of my life. You hear father, it's not a good thing. Or you might think father addictive. Father addiction characterizes father. He's unreasonable. He's unpredictable. He's controlled by something else. You might think abusive. Hurtful. But still, we have to grapple with this word. It's still used of Jesus here. It's, he's going to govern like a father. So, so what's the meaning there? And we have to realize we've got to get over. And I don't mean that unfeelingly, but we have to really move beyond our own first reaction and get to what the real point of this is. What's he really saying? And sometimes we have to move then and say, well, I know in my head what a real father should be. And I know my real father, my biological father wasn't that. But, but I do know what father ought to be. Well, well, that's closer, way closer than your experience, this father that you think ought to be. And when I say closer, I mean still not perfect because none of us really get it. None of us really have this perfect notion of father. Even if you had a great dad, like my kids. Even if you had a great dad, that great dad pales in comparison to when father is applied to God. When the rule of a great dad on earth pales in comparison to the rule of Christ. When we understand him as everlasting father. So what does that really mean when we come to him. Well, I've been reading this morning on a couple of occasions from Psalm 103 because it speaks in some sense as God as Father. Uh, Psalm 103 verse 13, for instance, the very middle of it, if you will, the very heart of the passage. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those he, who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we're dust. You see, there's a sense of which that God says, okay, here's how I rule over you. And I rule through my son, Jesus, who's the everlasting father. So here's how it is. I rule with compassion. I rule with compassion upon you because I know you. And that, 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 that dictates then how I govern you because I really know who you are. I really know you. I rule you with with compassion, this little compassion, this word compassion can also be translated mercy. I, 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 I rule with, with mercy. You see, this notion of mercy can be contrasted with this other sort of Bible word that we know, which is the word grace. See, the word grace is God's kindness to us. God's kindness to us as guilty sinners. You see, he is he, gracious to us to forgive our sins because we're guilty before him. That's the sense of grace. It's a free gift. We don't deserve it. It's because of the work of Christ and his taking our sin upon himself and the guilt of that sin upon himself. So, so he's gracious to us. But grace 
most often refers to God's kindness to us because of this guilt. When we think of mercy, it's God's kindness to us because this sin makes us miserable. That is, he's responding to our misery. He's responding to our hurt. He's responding to our pain. He's responding to, to the, the result of sin in our lives and, and the life that it, it causes us really leads us to live. And so we think of God's mercy and grace. They're often coupled together. Because his grace comes to forgive. His mercy moves him, you see. His compassion moves him. You see, a compassionate person has to act. It isn't simply pity. You can pity someone and walk by them. But compassion, mercy, you see, there's this sense that wells up within us. And we get this sense that I know how you feel. I know what's going on there. I get it. And thus, I must help you. I can't not help you because of the mercy that I have. We know, you see, that Jesus is this faithful and merciful high priest. Uh, The author of Hebrews, no surprise, it comes in a book with that title, a letter with that title. Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 14, writes of Jesus, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. You see, when it speaks of Jesus as this high priest, a priest in Israel was always taken from the people. It was very explicit priest was taken from the people. Why? Why must a priest be taken from the people that that priest would serve? Well, because that priest was to represent that group of people to God. And and so when that priest would intercede on behalf of the people, whether it be in prayer or making sacrifice or whatever, that priest then would would intercede on behalf of the people, uh, not out of arrogance, but because he knew That this is exactly what these people needed. And the reason he knew this was exactly what these people needed is because he knew he needed it. He was part of that. And so when he made confession of the people's sin, it wasn't an abstract thing. Sometimes after a Sunday, some of you will come to me and say, "Uh, how did you know what I needed to confess today? I read it in the prayer of confession. How did you know that was me? And I say, because I'm omniscient, (laughs) I say, your wife, no, I say, (laughs) because that's me, you see. There's a priestly function that pastors serve. You know, this isn't abstract to me, these confessions of sin. These are real to me. If you come second service, oftentimes... That private confession part is shorter than first, con- first service because I've already confessed first time around. I'm trying to just buy my time. You know, I, it's only been an hour, you know. <laughs> right? It, this isn't abstract. This is real, you see. So when we talk, and I hope this is true for when you talk together about difficulties in life and even your own sin, there's no surprise here. I mean, I've sat with gossips and murderers and I've never been in a situation with another human being that I can't find 
me in them. And so when we pray for one another, this isn't an abstract thing, you see. It's called mercy and compassion. And you know how it is. You know that when you see someone in a predicament that you've been in, that those are the people you're most likely to be moved to help. You can't keep passing that over because you know how that feels. There may be some other things you don't relate to as well, so, so maybe those things are on the periphery, periphery of you, but, but really when you think about it in the human condition, compassion wells up within us. But notice the point here. Jesus, the very Son of God, He's the one who's the everlasting Father. He's going to come with compassion. How can He do that? Because He's come, you see. And He's experienced our frame. He knows that. And, he, and as I mentioned a few weeks ago, He knows it to the very end. While He didn't sin, He's fought this temptation to its very end. He knows the depth and the height and the width of temptation. He knows it way deeper than we know it. He gets it. He understands when we struggle. He says, I know. He's our merciful, faithful high priest. Have you ever wondered why it is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was filled with terror, as the scripture says. Now, here was a man who had just been with his disciples and he told them that they would have peace. But yet when you see him in the garden, peace isn't what you would, you, that's not the word you'd use to describe Jesus. There he was pleading with his father. The scripture says that he was in such great intensity that drops of sweat came like blood off his forehead, you see. I mean, that's what was going on in the midst of this. And you remember the, the plea to his father, this cup can pass in any way, shape, or form. Please let it do that. Why is it that he was there in that kind of situation? I I mean, after all, he had just told his disciples, I'm going to die. He knew it. He he had just told his disciples, this is the purpose for which I came. This will be to my glory and my Father's glory. Why in that moment was he filled with such terror? Why the plea to take the cup away? Because, you see, he was facing death for us. He was experiencing at that moment the reality of death and not simply the reality of not breathing. He was facing the real reality of death, which is the wrath of God. He knows that. Now, fortunately for you and I, for you and me, we can say to God, Is there any way that this cup of the wrath of God can pass from us? And God says, oh yes, of course there is. Someone's already taken it for you. Jesus, trust him. So we won't know that. We need not fear that. But he did. He's our merciful high priest. He rules with compassion because he knows us even deeper and better than we know ourselves. And so when he's called the everlasting father, you see, oh yes, that's his rule. Because you see, anytime we hear of a king and a ruler, we think we're going to be abused in some ways they perform, isn't it? I mean, even when, when the people came to, to God for a king, he says, well, tell them what a king will be like. They'll tax them and send their sons into war. But here's the one who's going to come and won't do that. Here's the one who will stand for us. Here's the one who will fight for us. Here's the one who is our high priest. Here's the one who rules 
with compassion. Notice what else we find in this, in this great psalm con- concerning him. He, he forgives our sins, you see. That's how he rules. He rules with this mercy that knows our frame and knows our sin and forgives us. It says he forgives all our iniquities. He heals all of our diseases. He, he gets it. You remember one of the great expressions of Jesus in the Gospels, and it's used very often right before he heals someone. It's this little expression, and he had compassion. He had compassion. One of my favorite books in my library, no, one of the favorite titles of the books in my library is a book called And He Had Compassion. Now, sadly, the, uh, the author doesn't believe in the miracles of Jesus, but I really like the title because uh, it's true of him, you see. He had compassion. Think of it. This wasn't X's and O's for Jesus. This wasn't an objective thing as he sort of came and says, well, you're sick, I'll heal you. No, 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 no. He enters in. Why? Did he cry at the tomb of Lazarus? What a funny thing. I mean, why didn't somebody tap Jesus on the shoulder and say, just bring him back to life. It'll be fine. (laughs) No, you see, he didn't bring him back to life until he was moved with compassion, until he entered in, until he understood. And there's this sense, and it's mysterious to us, I know that. But there's a sense in which he does get it. He does understand. He's a faithful high priest he, with compassion. So he heals diseases. And a day will come when all disease will be healed. Now, he allows us. We go through these ordained. We go through various kinds of difficulties. This side of glory, generation after generation until it's all finished. But we know that when it's all finished, there will be no disease for the people of God, for those who trust in him. He heals all your diseases. He redeems us. Redeems us. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He says, this is, this is the crown. This is how God approaches you. This is how God comes to you. So he crowns you, first of all, which is pretty cool. And then he says, the way that he crowns us is with love and mercy, steadfast love. He never, ever stops, stops loving us. And he disciplines us. He says, notice verse 8. He says, he will not always chide. Chide means reprimand. He won't always do that, which means he sometimes will. Because he won't always do it. We know he'll do it sometimes, but not forever. But he disciplines us. How? Author of Hebrews again tells us he disciplines us for our good to bring holiness into our lives. Difficulties come. All kinds of things come. And we, we see those things that come as the discipline of the Lord. Now, again, when we think of discipline, we think, oh, I must have done something wrong. No, discipline means training. Teaching, instructing. Yes, sometimes correcting, but teaching and training us. And so this discipline comes from one who is our father, our compassionate father. Again, he's not like a little boy who likes to pick, you know, wings off the flies that he catches. That's not God. He's compassionate to us. He loves us. He cares for us. He's producing in us holiness. There are times when we think, doesn't God care if I'm happy? <laughs> this is a miserable circumstance, a miserable situation. Doesn't he care that I'm happy? And of course, the quick line to that is, oh, God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And that's true, but there's something deeper. He's very concerned about our happiness. He's way more concerned about our happiness 
than we are, so concerned about our happiness, is that he won't allow us to be happy in unholiness. He desires for us to be happy in holiness because he knows that only holiness brings real joy. Everything else is fake. And so he moves us to holiness because he's concerned about our happiness and our joy. And so we know that at the end of the difficulty, at the end of the trial, as he puts it, a harvest of righteousness and peace. But you see, he's our everlasting father in another sense as well. And that is, he's the one who has come to give us life. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, we realize that Adam, in one sense, was to be our father, the father of the human race. He was to be this one who would stand for us all. And that he would, as compassionate and father, would defend all of us who would come after him. Not only would he defend his bride Eve from from any evil that would come into the garden, but he would defend all of his stock, if you will, all who would come after him, all, all that were in him at that moment in time. And he stood there as the father of the human race. And what he did, you see, was fail. He sinned. He ruined us all, all who were in him. He didn't have compassion for us. He didn't defend his bride Eve. But he sinned and rebelled against God. And when he did, it ruined us all. But then, of course, there was another promise of another father, this man named Abraham. And God says, well, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And out of you will come one who will bless all the, all the families of the earth. And, 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 and this Abraham was given this promise. And he himself was reconciled to God by faith. And he says, you're going to be the father of all who come by faith. Oh, yes, you'll have this natural seed, if you will. But, but really, what, what this is pointing to is that all who come by faith will be children of Abraham. You can read about it in Romans in chapter 4. He's the father of all who come by faith. That's all who were in Abraham. is to be our father. But still looking to this one who is to come, this one, Jesus. And he would be, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, the second Adam. He would come to be the everlasting father. He'd become the, the one who would be the great father so that all in him would have life. And so he comes, you see, to be the very everlasting father. This one who is, is the giver of life. It begins, of course, even before the foundations of the world is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit plan, ordain how it is that God would be glorified by having for himself a people who would declare his praises. And how all that would come about, that's the wonderful plan. That's the unfathomable plan. That's the plan that you and I would have never come up with. We would have never known that that's what it would mean to glorify God. And then, of course, creation happens, fall happens, Sin happens, the corruption of human race happens, and all the misery from sin. And God glorifies himself in the midst of all that, most especially as he brings to the earth this one who is his very own son, this Jesus who is come in the flesh. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he 
broke it. He gives it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. I feel for you. I've come in mercy, compassion, to serve you. You see, the misery that this sin has created in your lives. And I move now as everlasting Father to come and forgive. So he takes the cup as well. And again, after giving thanks, he gives this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And when we declare his death, we're declaring much, of course. His grace, his kindness to us because of the guilt of our sin. But his compassion to take us from the misery caused by sin in our lives. We might be reconciled to God and have the assurance that he cares for us and he loves us to be reconciled to one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me and for us that we would understand that. We know Jesus as everlasting Father, this compassionate one, forgives who heals, who disciplines, who gives life. I pray that even now around this table, We would know of his presence, Emmanuel, God with us, and know that he is everlasting Father. So I pray that you would set this bread and this juice aside in such a way that we'll know that Jesus is with us, and that we'll know his mercy and grace. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.